welcome to the Constructor Cast, your AGC place for all the news, views, and interviews relevant to your construction business. I am your host, Leah Pilkonis. The topic for today's podcast is natural disaster impacts on construction projects. It's extremely important to prepare for natural disasters, especially in the context of ongoing construction. During today's podcast, you will gain insights and perspectives from three industry experts in claims management, litigation, and restoration. We're going to talk about pre-loss planning, lessons learned in mitigating losses, including insurance considerations before the event, and challenges in promptly resuming business operations post-impact. This is part one of our two-part series. I hope you all will stay tuned for part two for expert advice on how to present a natural disaster claim for insurance recovery. I'd like to start off by welcoming our three industry experts, and I want to invite you all to say a little bit about yourself. Let's start with Tracy. Hi, I'm Tracy Sachs. Um, uh, Thank you for inviting all of us to do this uh, presentation. I'm an insurance coverage lawyer representing exclusively policyholders in insurance coverage issues and disputes with their insurers, Uh, but approximately 60% of my practice is related to the construction industry as our clients. Thanks, Tracy. Glad to have you here with us today. Joe, why don't you go next? Hi, Joe Poliopko. I'm the Director of Global Insurance and Risk Management for Interstate Restoration. I've been uh, in, in the risk management space in construction, uh, both on the heavy civil and vertical side for over 25 years, and have recently made the move into the restoration business, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Joe. We're glad to have you. Frank, how about you? My name is uh, Frank Russo. I am with a company called Procore Solutions and Consulting, and um, in my career and what we do at Procore, it's really focuses on helping risk managers and construction professionals prepare and present detailed claims when losses happen to make sure that they're getting paid everything they're entitled to within their insurance policy. Great. Thank you, gentlemen. Again, this first episode, we're going to be focusing on planning for and mitigating the impacts of a natural disaster. First question I have for you, has the risk of natural disasters increased for the construction industry in recent years? And let's touch on frequency, size, and cost of loss. Joe, can you comment on that for us? Absolutely, Leah. You know, as contractors and, and, and GCs that are out there uh, doing work, um, a lot, there's a lot of risks to projects, not the least of which is weather. Uh, some of the statistics that we've seen from a loss perspective worldwide for just the first half of 2019, we've seen $73 billion worth of insured property losses during the first half of 2019. 78% of those either involved flooding or severe weather. In addition to that, there's been somewhere around 17 $1 billion events around the world. And if you look at it on a percentage dollar for dollar basis, the United States has the largest losses um, out of out of most of the major countries that experience these types of losses. And the reason there primarily is because we've become more and more coastal from a, from a perspective. If you take Miami as an example, building high-rise condominiums, you've got large population centers within, you know, 30 to 45 minutes of drive to the coast. That increases not only the chances for a loss, but when a loss does occur and a severe weather event happens, 
and it also increases the cost. I'd like to add to Joe's comment, this is Frank, uh, natural catastrophes overall were ranked number one as a top concern for global construction and engineering firms in 2019. This was a study done by Allianz, the large insurance company. They pulled their risk barometer. Um, they basically uh, asked questions to over 2,400 global risk experts. We all thought it was pretty interesting. The number one top concern was natural uh, catastrophes for global contractors. Interestingly enough, the, sec the second largest risk for the same group was the risk of and fear of business interruption, which I know we're going to get into throughout these two podcasts. In the U.S., this reflects, in my opinion, the natural disaster activity of recent years um, with major losses from the hurricane of 2017 to recent devastating wildfires. Um, in fact, in recent years, among the most expensive um, years for catastrophe losses, 2018 was the fourth costliest year on record in terms of insured catastrophe losses, while 2017 was the second most expensive. So, there seems to be a trend that these big disruptions and costs for these events is clearly on the rise. When I look at it from an owner-developer, general contractor, and subcontractor perspective, they're all facing increasing risk um, for interruption scenarios, both directly from these types of events, but also, importantly, indirectly. Um, these events can affect construction projects. So it's important to understand how they can uh, severely impact a construction project, like I said, directly or indirectly. You know, an indirect example would be a major area-wide disaster like hurricane that does not affect a particular project, but there's an extended power outage um, that you know, indirectly affects that, that construction project. So it's important to understand the downstream impacts as well. In light of the importance of this issue, Tracy, can you explain to us and kind of kick off the conversation regarding what are some best practices that a construction firm should take to plan for a natural disaster. I'm going to give you the perspective that I have as an insurance coverage lawyer representing policyholders, but I think it's good that you've assembled this team of people for this podcast. I think we all have a different role, and this really is a team effort. And part of the things that you should do is actually assemble your team in advance of the natural disaster, and that from inside, that can be the risk manager, that can be the um, your general counsel, your CFO, um, it can also be outside counsel, including your construction counsel, your coverage lawyers, uh, valuation experts such as uh, such as Frank Russo is here, uh, and scheduling experts who they, they also provide those as well, and restoration contractors. All of that needs to be lined up in advance of the disaster, so you're not chasing around when you need to be working on this, just assembling the team. But beyond that, I'm going to limit my comments. I think we have a part two, of course, that talks about post-claim issues, uh, but. Talking about the main thing to look at for us, and first thing that would be the insurance program itself. In conjunction with the risk manager and the insurance broker, uh, you should be looking over your insurance policies on an integrated basis to look at all the policies together to imagine when you have a loss due to a natural disaster, what's going to happen? What type of physical damage are you going to incur? If the project's under construction, is there going to be soft costs and business interruption losses? Uh, should you be concerned? about the um, other particular policy language. And I'm going to try and divide this into two parts and think, want everybody to think in terms of the fact that, for the most part, we expect when it's a natural disaster that we're looking at our first-party coverage. And by that, I mean the coverage that doesn't require anybody's fault or a claim against anybody else, that you have direct coverage for the losses to your own property. Now, that's typically when a project's under construction. We're talking about a builder's risk policy. 
sometimes it's also done under your commercial property policy with an endorsement for a builder's risk endorsement on that uh, policy. And what you need to make sure that you've uh, looked through and done a review, a thorough review before the disaster, is to make sure you've got good physical damage coverage with appropriate sublimits, that you've got good soft cost coverage, that you've got appropriate business interruption uh, and lost rental coverage. That, and we'll talk about some of these things a little bit more in part two, but we also need to think about what if the, you're interrupted because the, um, someone else's business is shut down or there's some other reason uh, why you can't operate. And that would deal with a con uh, contingent business interruption, which needs to be looked at and considered. You need to consider whether or not it might be because a civil authority shuts you down, uh, whether you have coverage for that as well. All of these things, and particularly the deductibles, can get tricky. Sometimes you've got percentage deductibles that are need to be reviewed, and, and particularly named storm deductibles that only come into play when there is, in fact, a storm that has been named uh, as such. Uh, also, just beyond that a little bit is talking about other policies that could come into play. You might have an environmental insurance coverage policy that could become an issue. Uh, many times natural disasters can cause environmental damage that might be covered on a first-party basis. And although I've said that it, it should be treated as a first-party loss, the insurers often look to find a way to make it some other fault so that they have someone else to, to share that loss with, and that can result in uh, claims that there may be it was improperly constructed in a way to resist the natural disaster. And then you might end up having to look to your general liability policies, your professional liability policies, or any other liability policy that might be in play. Although my recommendation as a coverage lawyer, and we'll talk about this a little more in the next episode, is that we try to limit this to not fighting with each other and try to get your first party coverage uh, as the main focus. If, if I could add to what Tracy had to say, you know, from a risk management standpoint, we, we put a lot of emphasis as risk managers on getting our internal stakeholders aligned with, you know, our disaster recovery mitigation strategies. The reality of the situation is you have to think uh, as far as third parties as well. Uh, and a lot of third parties that we would use, whether it's a restoration contractor or a subcontractor to come in and help us fix some of the damage, um, that would be normally covered under any builder's risk scenario, we have a tendency to commoditize that. We have a, com a tendency to look at just pricing, uh, and we don't take into consideration things like response time. We don't take into consideration uh, things that will help us get our business back up to speed. Um, and and the, the thought of this is as these disasters become more not only frequent but widespread, um, these events are, are very big and can take out a large area of, a, of the population. So you need to align yourself with vendors and folks that can get to the area to help you get your business back up and running. And you need to make your vendor selection and, and, and bring your vendors into your crisis management disaster planning scenarios as well. And, and Leah, I would echo both what Tracy and, and Joe has said. And, um, add to it by thinking a little bit more on the business continuity side of the equation. Um, so when evaluating potential risk of a disaster to a construction project, I believe it's important to model the worst case scenario that could cause some material impact. Um, we like to say that resiliency to disasters is location specific. So what that means to us is, and I think Joe touched on this in his opening comments, is the project near the coast is subject to water or wind uh, events like hurricanes, or is there a risk to potential wildfires in the area? Or is it all the above? So determining the likelihood of each scenario to the job site 
including similar potential risk downstream to subcontractors and suppliers of materials is crucial. I would offer a few additional items to consider in business continuity planning for construction professionals. One, um, it's important to develop a detailed emergency preparedness checklist, kind of like what Joe just mentioned, including internal and external roles and responsibilities. And it's important to note that on a, on a builder's risk policy, you'll have the owner's team, you'll have the GC's team, you'll have the trade's team. So trying to coordinate that up front is key. Um, what equipment are we going to protect in the event, event of a loss? So we have to tailor those emergency plans to each specific job site condition. The second point I would throw out is it's important to train the team, the folks on, on the site, in disaster preparedness. Reinforce those um, training, training items with uh, drills to ensure everyone's prepared, the site staff, the labor, GCs, subs, temporary labor. So there should be a culture of risk resilience, in our opinion, for all involved in the project. And lastly, it's important to establish a disaster command post. Um, and that command post should have sufficient communication access and equipment, backup items like generators for power, um, and access to fuel for powering generators as well, too, um, just so everyone's on, on the same page once that event happens, where to go and how to kind of resume operations as quickly as possible. Finally, once those disasters happen, I would say that it's important to reevaluate, adjust, and improve that response plan to improve effectiveness. So, Lee, if you don't mind this, Tracy, again, I, I would like to add something. I think that Frank makes some good points there, but the, the main thing to remember is that we want Frank's team to be able to be paid for out of that policy. And so it becomes an important issue here that you buy the coverage up front that includes um, the, the, uh, the, the cost to pay for your own professional adjustment team to put the claim together. That is something that sometimes is overlooked and sometimes needs to be at least increase the amount of money that it's going to take in order to hire the professionals who are going to put the claim together. And I would add that uh, sophisticated insureds, uh, policyholders, often uh, will part of their policy, they will select who the insurance company's adjustment team is as well and get them familiar with the project in advance of any disaster so that when it happens, they're not just scrambling around trying to figure out how it is you do business, how you make money, and what you lost. So both of those things, having your own professional team paid for under the insurance policy and having selected and introduced the insurance company's team to the project is critical pre-disaster planning. Great. Thank you all. That was such a great snapshot of some good practices and tips across the board that folks need to keep in mind. Frank, I have a follow-up question for you. Can you talk to us a little bit about the first week after the storm event or the natural disaster event? What are some practical, simple steps that a construction firm should take immediately after they're impacted by a natural disaster? Um, it's a great question. And you know, as we transition to being prepared for these types of events to actually uh, game time, as I like to say, when the events happen, it's it's important to note that even the most prepared organizations are typically um, uh, faced with a curveball that they did not expect. So it's important to stay flexible and, and to, like I like to say, keep it simple, stupid, the KISS model. Uh, but some basic steps that we always recommend to our clients, number one is to document all the damage. Um, can't stress that enough. Photograph and video footage of the loss are key to memorializing the damages. At some point, these items of evidence will help you settle potential disagreements on items such as scope and pricing between the claim and potentially the insurance company's position. So uh, when taking those photos and videos, it's important to include pictures of identifying information, such as serial number of damaged equipment. You know, it's not just okay to take a picture of a damaged um, air conditioning unit. What's the actual equipment number? What's the serial number? As much identifying information as possible, we would suggest. 
or the location where the actual photo was taken. And I would also suggest around documenting damages that you think about leveraging new technology. For example, we see more and more use of drone photography to capture um, hard-to-access damages via an aerial inspection. Uh, so there's different technologies that should be leveraged around that as well. The second thing I would say is it's important to take decisive action to mitigate the loss and initiate your recovery. As Tracy alluded to in his earlier comments around policy conditions, one of the major policy conditions after an event is to, to mitigate your loss. So uh, you will be judged upon that later on in the claims process. So after the damage has been memorialized, it's important to focus on uh, strategic decisions that get your business or the project up and running as quickly as possible. Sometimes we get the question and there's confusion on whether or not to act to mitigate the loss before the first adjuster, uh, first insurance adjuster visits the site. While you don't need to ask permission from your adjuster to act, it does help, in my opinion, to keep him or her informed in the loop as you make decisions to mitigate your loss. More often than not, any decision to mitigate a loss as a prudent business person would be considered favorably by the insurance community. Um, and it's important, again, in a builder's risk situation, and it's also more challenging to understand, to coordinate all different stakeholders that may or may not be making claims against the policy, whether it's the owner, GC, or subs. So lastly, I would say just be decisive in those decision makings. Lastly, I would suggest that, and, and Tracy made a great point, you know, it's good to know the adjuster before a loss happens, if you can have that built into your program and know who that person is, he or she, what they're about. But if you don't have that relationship, um, you should prepare for that first insurance adjuster visit. And it's important to survey the damage with your adjuster um, with, with somebody who understands the, the worst case scenario of the event. Of the event. Oftentimes, we see people and clients relying on facility staff for this inspection, and there's not really the full story being presented in the beginning, which is a crucial time for everyone to understand what a claim may look like, uh, may look like what costs everyone may be facing. So it's important to set the tone, uh, create the working relationship for the entire adjustment process. And you have to remember, too, especially in an area-wide disaster like a hurricane, adjusters are typically spread thin. You likely don't have unlimited time to spend at your loss. So you know, be prepared for, for them when they show up. Be prepared to walk the adjuster around, show him and her the obvious damages, maybe the not-so-obvious damages, and explain your recovery efforts and timeline in documenting the event. I'd like to add one other thing, Leah. It seems a little bit obvious, but I've, as a risk manager, I've run across this several times. Timely reporting of, of an event becomes uh, critical so that you can implement your plan and, and I know that we're talking about natural disasters, but just claims in general, that education process with the field staff to have them understand at least the minimal basic uh, coverage points so that when there is a claim that you can get uh, on it right away, implement the plan, bring in the third parties as necessary so that you don't, you don't, you don't lose any, any critical time at all after a loss. And I'm going to just comment on the, the, um, the part Frank said before. This is Tracy again. Um, the provision he is referring to when you talk about preparing for the disaster is often referred to as the sue and labor provision. And you should understand it's not just that you have the right to, ch to, uh, to, to take reasonable efforts to avoid imminent damage. You have an obligation to protect the insurer themselves from covered losses that you could have protected against. Um, I agree 100% with Frank, although it doesn't require you to get permission in advance, having done so will have a lot less um, second-guessing about whether you made reasonable expenditures after the fact. One of the things that often happens, and this is something that we all want to avoid even if there were no disaster, is that the first thing I end up seeing is that we have a claim, and when the, uh, they say that they've lost time on the job that was in progress, 
but there was no up-to-date schedule. Um, and so, therefore, it's very, very difficult when your schedule isn't up-to-date right before the disaster to measure where you would have been had the disaster not occurred, and that's how the measurement you're going to have to make. Uh, so extra, if you really want to do some precautionary steps, I would say spend a little bit more effort into making sure your schedule is always up to date and accounts for all the issues that have come up along the way, because there are very few major commercial projects that haven't had some other delay that occurred during the course of the project. And the insurance company, to the extent that they've got email traffic back and forth between the owner and the general contractor and the subcontractors, complaining about them delaying the job, are going to point to those things and say, we don't owe you any money. The natural disaster caused no damage, no loss of time. You already had all these other problems that have nothing to do with the natural disaster. In fact, it feels as though, based on the cases I've got in litigation currently, that it has become common practice for the insurance company to hire a certain set of experts who come in with a schedule that always seems to say that even though it costs $4 million to do all this repair, actually there was no loss of time whatsoever due to the natural disaster that occurred. Uh, it, it's anomalous that they should be able to say that, but <laughs> that is routinely happening at this point. Thank you all. That's some really great advice that you offered. I want to circle back with you, Joe, speaking from the experience of a construction risk manager who's been there and lived it. Obviously, after facing a natural disaster, and you all have talked about this, the reality that storm repair and recovery, you know, take time away from a planned construction project and take time away from work. Joe, what are some of the challenges that you faced in, in figuring out the best way to get up and running as quickly as possible? There's the practical things that you can think about right out of the gate, which is um, I need to get my project back to where it was prior to that event. And, and what assets do we have as contractors? We have material, we have equipment, and we have people. So you have to look at it in those three different buckets. How am I going to get the materials to fix and get my project back in line? And if it's a widespread type of a situation, you're not the only one that's going to be looking for drywall and wood and you know nails and, and just the basics to get a project right back up and running. Um, the other key piece of that is how are you going to communicate with your people if communication lines are down, if, if cell towers aren't working? How are you going to communicate with your people to get them to get, be able to come to the project to help you get the project back online? And when you throw into the mix the fact that if it is widespread, they're probably dealing with their own issues on their own property, whether it be their home or a rental property or anything like that, They're, they might even be displaced. They may not even be around because of evacuation. So you need to think about all those different aspects, and there's not necessarily one right answer. Uh, and then the last thing is, again, I get back to the vendor piece. If you have a vendor that, that can bring in resources, not necessarily from that area, but from other parts of the country, and have that lined up ahead of time, you may be able to use that as an advantage, uh, you know, from a competitive standpoint as well. And Lee, I'd like to add to Joe's point in talking about external vendors um, being ready to support the organization. He's absolutely correct that you have to have the right vendors that have been through these types of events almost on a daily basis with a long history. They know some of the nuances. They know some of the regional issues. Um, a lot of times we'll see clients that are working with a local expert and for example, get promised a generator, and the generator is delivered, 
but then the, the, uh, the local expert weave a generator and there's no fuel to operate the generator, so the generator is rendered useless. Um, there are a lot of different organizations, restoration companies um, that out there, some of the best on a national basis that know kind of the full spectrum of what you're going to face, um, even some things that you may have not considered that will ultimately rear their ugly head and, and be able to support you at that time of need. So it's important to make sure that you have a thorough analysis of firms uh, like the one Joe works for, as, as well as others nationally that do this. Thanks, Frank. And I'd actually like to kick the last question to you, uh, kind of as a prelude to what we're going to cover more in part two. How should a, a project work to establish a solid foundation for an insurance claim submission within the early days of an event? It's critical that first week after an event to establish um, what the process is going to be to prepare and present the claim. And, you know, while we talked about, all of us have talked about um, real um, items to execute to be able to get back up and running, someone's got to focus on what are we doing to document the actual damages, the costs, um, especially if um, most, if not all of those costs will be sought through the insurance policy. And the insurance companies are going to require detail to, to pay on those claims. Um, it's often said that the insurance industry is a relationship business, um, and I agree with that, but I always say that detail settle claims. So what level of detail do you have? You know, Tracy mentioned um, making sure you have a clean schedule. You know, how detailed is your post-event remediation schedule? Um, have you set up a separate job cost tracking code or a potential change order to track all the lost costs cost related to the loss? Um, and, and how much are you providing additional detail to dissect those costs? Um, for example, temporary um, mitigation versus permanent repair, uh, identifying where the work was on a particular barrier of the building. So it's important to set that up in the first week, and, and it's uh, equally important at the end of the first week or so, once kind of the uh, uh, issues have subsided and you're now ready to go into the long-term claim preparation, uh, to prepare what we call a preliminary loss estimate or an order of magnitude. Um, it's probably one of the most important things I would leave your audience with, in, the, in my opinion, the pre-loss phase, is to have an understanding of what the costs are that you will be facing as a team. And I say team, it could be the GC, it could be the owner and developer, it could be a sub, it could be all of the above. But developing that um, short summary or estimate that identifies all areas of the loss with estimated cost, estimated um, potential um, cost that you will face. For example, if the building is damaged, you know, you're obtaining estimates for repair to, to demonstrate the ultimate cost that will come to fruition. If it's too early to identify an item, Tracy mentioned business interruption, or we talk about delaying opening after the first week, that's obvious. It's probably hard to identify that, but it's important to include it in the ROM or the rough order of magnitude and putting next to it a TBD to be determined. The reason why this is important, the insurance adjuster, his or her first responsibility is to identify a loss reserve for that particular loss. And as I mentioned earlier, especially in chaotic area-wide disasters where they don't have the adjuster does not have hours to spend on your site. If you're not prepared with a, a ROM and some estimates of the worst-case scenario, all items that may or may not come to fruition, um, the adjuster may set a loss reserve that doesn't adequately reflect the ultimate cost of the claim. And in my experience, if the loss reserve is set too low, that's where claims take a long time to settle. That's where some issues um, arise and the timeline to, to ultimate uh, payment um, uh, extends or becomes uh, unduly extended. So. Just the loss is what it is. The costs are what they are. But you want to give the worst-case scenario. You want to be within reason, of course. But the adjuster then will do what he or she needs to do to understand the full potential of the loss and set a proper loss reserve. 
Um, and then as you move towards the full claims reimbursement, it's important to remember, too, that a claim does not have to only be paid at the end of the process. The adjuster is able to release funds as items are agreed to support it. So prove damages early. You know, like I said, if you have to estimate early, that's fine. But as costs are incurred, prepare and present those costs um, in, in, in claim submission to the adjuster and ask for partial payments. This will help you. This will help the project maintain cash flow for the entire project during the recovery. Thank you, Frank. And thank you so much, Tracy and Joe, for sharing all of your expertise and these valuable tips and information with our listeners. And thank you all for listening. I'm really looking forward to hearing part two, where you're all going to share your expert advice on how to present a natural disaster claim for insurance recovery. We are going to have some more information in the show notes for this episode, some links uh, to some additional resources and also links to the websites for each of our guest company pages. This has been the AGC Constructor Cast. You can search for Constructor Cast in your podcast app or stream and download all available episodes right from your computer. Just visit www.agc.org/constructorcast.